Hello, Harrogate. It's great to be here. Um, it would be even better if I could get my computer to work. There we go. This is much better than Prestatton, isn't it? Hey, seeing so many uh, old friends here uh, over the last uh, 24 hours. It's been absolutely brilliant to be here. And I just wanted to say the, the message last night um, from your superintendent, the message of unity, the message of the gospel. I said to him afterwards, this is like reading the strategic plan of the Evangelical Alliance. I just want to encourage Elam. You are, we get to see the church across all the different streams and across all the different denominations. You are right on the money, okay? Can I just encourage you with that? Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Keep doing it. God is with you. You're right on the money. Um, we do have a very strong link with Elam at the uh, Evangelical Alliance, as has been mentioned. John Glass is such a blessing to us in so many ways and such a, um, such a source of wisdom uh, in many ways. So I just want to thank you for loaning him to us for a time. Uh, he's just become a personal friend as well. A little bit of background about me before I start on the talk. You may have noticed I talk with a strange accent. I'm from a place called Bootle in North Liverpool. Yes, where there is a very strong Pentecostal presence, you'll be glad to hear. I was born in Bootle, raised there, went to school there occasionally, and got saved at the age of 26, right out of the world, went into a little Baptist church in North Bootle, um, where God just spoke to me. And God took me on a journey. I was a builder at the time. He took me on a journey through education. I left school without any qualifications. And within nine years of coming to faith, uh, he'd taken me through various qualifications to be lecturing in political philosophy at Lancaster University with a PhD. Uh, I think, I think, no, glory to God. I think, I think the Lord thought we've got a really stupid one here. Might need to really work on this one for a little bit, which is what he's done. And, uh, and God is continuing to work, to work on me. Um, I'm married to Valeria, who's at the front here, my beautiful assistant. And uh, we live uh, in Bedfordshire, and I work mostly in London, but also travel around the country with the Evangelical Alliance. Um, the backdrop is I worked for 10 years in Parliament. I was lecturing in politics and what's called policy sociology, and uh, with a strong emphasis on post-modernity, relativism. I think God was teaching me, like Daniel, to learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians. That's where we are. We, we all need to learn the language and literature of the Babylonians. And I worked for 10 years in Parliament for Bible Society um, as a sort of central hub for the parliamentary community there, for the MPs, the peers, and the big policy community. And then, uh, about six years ago, I moved across to the Evangelical Alliance, where I now run the advocacy work. You know, EA's existed for 171 years to just unite and connect evangelicals for the mission of the gospel. But it's always, because of that, has a strong focus on religious liberty issues, because they're intrinsically linked to the gospel. 
And for many, many years, uh, we've been campaigning in them areas, and we do that today. And we have an amazing policy team of experts in the different assemblies and parliaments who represent your voice to government. Uh, it's a bit frightening to think that I speak on your behalf to government. But like it or lump it, it is what it is. Uh, and we've got a great team, and we've got the theological advisory group that Dave Newton, another very gifted scouser, is part of. Um, God's got a real heart for Liverpool, it's, well, especially for Everton, um, and Real Madrid. And uh, I'll stop there, that's it, I won't do any more, okay? Um, <laughs> I've completely lost my way now. But we're here to represent your voice, public policy work. We represent your voice to government, to media, to the authorities, to different civil service uh, departments of state, um, and different consultative bodies. But representing voice is one thing, but we also need to enhance the voice of the church. We want to see your voice increased wherever you are, and whatever God has called you to do, in whatever sphere that might be. And today, I want to talk about public leadership. Public leadership is a way, it's a, it's a word that we've developed to talk about how we encourage uh, the influence of Christians to increase in um, life, generally, in society, in our communities, in our nation. Now, this talk won't be like other talks that you've had that, that is just full of scripture and full of prophetic words. I will get to scripture, I promise you that but I, I just tend to ramble on about politics quite a bit, so it will have lots of references to the public policy work that we're doing that hopefully will um, help frame things for the context of our public leadership. So I'll talk about the context we're in at this moment, how we got here, the landscape that we inhabit, the landscape we walk through as public leaders, what our society looks like now. It's changed and it's changing rapidly, and there are all sorts of challenges and opportunities within that. And then I'll look at the response or the possible responses of the people of God to them challenges and opportunities in that land, landscape. And then hopefully I'll pull it together by pointing you to some resources and we'll, we'll pray at the end. Is that okay? Yeah. Is anyone having trouble um, understanding my accent? Do you need an interpreter? <laughs> go and see the people from Bootle. They'll help you. My main message today is this. If we really want to see our homes, our towns, our cities, our nations changed for God, alongside the primary call of us to proclaim the gospel, all Christians need to take responsibility to intentionally lead change in our society. Intentionally lead change in our society at every level and in every way. I mean, God's doing this all over the country right now, but more often than not, He's doing it despite us and not because of us. And hopefully, we'll get to that. Although a revival would be very, 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 very welcome in the UK, and we pray for that and we believe for that, and there are actually some rather good signs around that at this moment in time. To see real change, it also requires the church developing a culture, a leader culture in our society. Otherwise, others are just leading for us. Leadership's about setting the agenda, and who do you want to set the agenda in our society? So, even in the event of a great revival, and we can look at what happened post-revivals in the past, unless we embed the goodness of God and the blessings of God in the institutions of our society, in the way we live, the culture, what we regard as normal, 
then we lose the benefits of them blessings, don't we? We lose them, and we've lost them, I would say, in many ways. So first, a few definitions. What is public leadership? You can go onto our uh, website, uh, thepublicleader.com, and uh, it's not up there, but you can go onto the website, uh, thepublicleader.org, the pub, the and it's got a range of descriptions on it. But basically, at a very basic level, it's about God's people being salt and light, um, and being missional in the jobs and communities and various roles that they have in society, doing them for God. And these people can be church leaders, they certainly can and, and are, but mostly they're not church leaders, they're just people who are in church but doing a variety of different roles. And it's not just the workplace either, it's the community. It's wherever authority is required, whatever responsibility is needed. That's where public leadership is. These public leaders are just ordinary people that God has given an extraordinary passion or burden to, and God has called them in to, to do something about it. To some people, public leadership, it sounds a bit provocative. Um, some people think it's a bit arrogant or elitist to talk about uh, leadership uh, in the church, and there's a couple of things I'd like to say about that before we move on. We need to drop the false humility around leadership and accept responsibility to lead in our society. Meekness doesn't mean weakness, quite the opposite. We lead because God leads and we're made in his image. Someone's gonna lead, so we should kind of get good at it. And the church has actually got lots of leadership resources within it. We just need to make a transfer of them into our society a little bit more intentionally. And the second thing to note is that Christian leadership needs to be different. It needs to be servant leadership. Jesus called us to lead in a distinctive way, not like the world. Os Guinness says we need to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. There should be something recognizably different about the way we lead to the way people in the world lead. So I'll cover a bit of theology around public leadership as we, as we go on further in this talk. Um, and we, you know, at the Evangelical Alliance, we love theology. We have, I'm surrounded by theologians. They're very annoying people. Sorry, Dave. They really are. They keep asking awkward questions that nobody's ever got real answers to. But it's really important that they keep asking these questions. We have our theology advisory group. And over the years, the Alliance has looked at all these different theologies and ideas for how we transform society. Because as evangelicals, it's in our DNA to be activists, to be out there. And that's what we're all doing today in various ways. So we've looked at all these different models that might work and won't work. We've looked at the spheres of culture with movements. We've looked at forums and clusters, the mountains of culture. These are all the terms that you use for cultural transformation. And what we've noticed when we've looked across them all is there's a common denominator that ties all of these different ideas and projects together, and they're all valuable in various ways. And the common denominator, the thread, is people. How revolutionary is that? People. It's people who change things. It's people who lead change. People who are full of faith, full of passion, and have the aptitude to do things and change things. And when we talk to leaders, we often talk to leaders in the city and leaders of big businesses about public leadership, they immediately get it. 
Because they understand that if you want to change anything, you need to grab it, wrestle it in blood and mud from here to there. Nothing changes unless you lead the change. They get that straight away, and I hope you as leaders will also get that. So, in a sense, in this sense, public leadership, it's not prescriptive in terms of where we should lead, but that's up to God. Wherever God leads you is where you should lead, but we do think we should do it well. A few quick examples before I move into the why public leadership is important. Uh, a few examples from my part of the world. In Bootle, there's a, a lady called Claire, and Claire had a heart for children in her community. And Claire's heart is a big heart. And Claire was burnt up with her passion for what was happening to children in Bootle. So much so, so she set up a children's charity, uh, which now starts working in schools, and now it's working with health professionals and working with child psychologists, and has now got an employment dimension to it, where she's got jobs and training for young people. And she's got young people now pastoring young people, discipling young people, coming to faith in Bootle. She's just a woman with a huge heart who had to do something. And God just breathed into that and blessed her. And we see this every time. Another friend of mine in Bootle, uh, a Baptist minister called Alan, um, who's a comedian. He does stand-up comedy. He is quite funny. He looks funny. He's a very ugly person. Um, he looks like Kung Fu Panda, uh, which helps him in his comedy. But he, he, was, he said he was sick of people coming on the radio in Merseyside saying that they were representatives for the church and talking nonsense, and he'd never even heard of them. And he said, these people, they seem to go far with a little bit of self-promotion. So I said, well, what's wrong with self-promotion? Why aren't you doing a little bit of self-promotion? So we talked it through. He'd done a little bit of self-promotion. He got himself into a comedy festival. The local newspaper then interviewed him. He was on the front page of the Liverpool Echo, the comedy vicar, his big fat head on the front. <laughs> a big uh, centre page spread on him. And he now does a regular radio show in Liverpool where he sort of reviews the news. And, and when things happen in North Liverpool, who do the media go to? They go to Alan. Because he's earned the right to the microphone. He's built the relationships. He's been intentional. And it really is that easy on one level. Another person, a bit further out from Liverpool, called Fiona, she had a real heart for families. She was really moved by what was happening to family life. She's a solicitor dealing with a lot of the breakups of families. And she was so moved by this that she thought she needed to go into politics to represent families more and to try and stop what was happening to families. And she uh, became an MP. She's now an MP in Parliament, and she's an amazing, spirit-filled, Bible-believing power of God in our Parliament. And it was just a burden that moved her. And I could tell you so many stories about people who just have this burden, and God, they take a step, and God just moves with them. God loves this stuff. He really does. So, why is public leadership important for the church? Number one, Jesus is quite literally the hope of the nations. Number two, because we have a biblical mandate to practically demonstrate the kingdom of God ahead of its coming as a witness to him. And more on that in a minute. Also, because participation isn't really enough. Food banks are amazing. They're great. But somebody has to start them. Yeah? Cap. We've got John Kirby here. Cap 
rocks. CAP is amazing, but wouldn't it be great if we had other people downstream changing the laws and changing the culture so that people didn't get into debt? Wouldn't it be great if we had a government that supported poor people better? Wouldn't that be good? You know? We need to be more intentional about being involved. We need to shape the culture because if we don't shape the culture, the culture will shape us because that's what culture is. That's what it does. So another reason why the church needs to be involved, and this is really, really important. Young people want to change the world. It's just the way they're wired. And if we don't give our young people in church a radical, revolutionary, countercultural, exciting, dynamic, biblical framework for leading change in their generation, they will inevitably be captured by liberal theologies of just the social gospel and just being a, a, another arm of the state, and they will drift away from church. That happened in the interwar years of the last century with the social gospel and liberal theology, and it will happen again if we don't inspire our young people with a biblical basis to change our society. Finally, why the, why the church should be involved in public leadership? Because if God's people aren't in positions of influence within our society and don't have them voice places, we can be sure that our freedoms for the gospel will diminish over time. You can bank on that. We need to be there. Politics and society, it's decided by those who show up. So we need to show up. So this is why developing a culture of public leadership in the UK church is a strategic priority for us going forward. We see it as such at the Alliance. And this is not a project we're on, it's a, it's a 30, 40 year walk in a particular direction. If you want to change a culture, you've got to think long term. It's one of the things I think the Catholic Church is very good at. It's very monolithic and doesn't move or change very much, but it thinks in bigger time spans. And I think evangelicals can learn a lot from that in terms of cultural change. So why is public leadership important for society? Because if our gospel freedoms diminish, all our other freedoms and human rights will diminish too, and that's bad news for everyone. Because society desperately needs leadership, real leadership in every sphere, sector, and at every level, we have a crisis of leadership in the UK. We really do. And because leaders set the agenda, as I said, who do you want setting the agenda? Who do you want defining the priorities and the values for your communities, your cities, and your society? If you don't do it, somebody else will. It's as simple as that. So we need to lead biblically for the glory of God and for our healing. Okay, let's look at the context uh, that we're in for public leadership. William Booth, the great William Booth of the Salvation Army, uh, made this prophetic statement uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. He said, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, interesting, and heaven without hell. What a prophetic statement that was for the 20th century. He made this statement at a time when he could see the work of the three W's being dismantled. The three W's, by the three W's I mean Whitfield, Wesley, Wilberforce. We had the great revivals and we had Wilberforce and the Clapham sect embedding 
the blessings, the goodness of them revivals in our society, in the way we live together, in our social relationships. That's what the Clapham sect done. The problem, the problem is though, the change that they instituted, it was not maintained. I should also say as well, whenever we talk about the 20th century, it's always good to, re to name it as the secular century. The century where a great secular experiment was carried out in the West, where people tried to live without God. It didn't work. Okay. This is the 38 bus. The 38 bus runs from Clapham, it runs across London, from Clapham to Bloomsbury, I'm told. I might be wrong here, but I'm told it does. This is an image of the, the journey that our society has taken. The Clapham sect instituted all these changes in society and give us all these freedoms and institutions and really built the state in terms of education and welfare and prison reform and healthcare. It all come from their work, the work of their hands. As we come into the 20th century, another group of public leaders emerged called the Bloomsbury Group. You've heard of the Bloomsbury Group? These were secularists and atheists, people like uh, Virginia Woolf, Lytton Strachey, um, John Maynard Keynes, the economist, E.M. Forster, the writer. They were public intellectuals who basically set about dismantling and supplanting the work of the Clapham sect, and they done a very good job in the large part. And we live, our context is this, we live in the dwindling blessings of the first group of public leaders and the accumulating wreckage of the second group. You know, when we talk about the, the permissive society, uh, it really come from the ideas of the Bloomsbury group. The joke about them was they used to live in Bloomsbury, you know, in the sort of leafy squares in North London. They were very wealthy. And the joke was they, they lived in squares and slept in triangles, you know. I'll leave that one for you to figure out. So the story, we've been on a journey, and it, what, the, what this journey tells us is that what we gain in our society, we can surely lose. What we gain, we can lose. And every generation of Christians has a responsibility to contend for what's happening now and what's ahead and what's been achieved for them in the past. We can't rest in this, um, in this contention. And to, to develop, to, to take this on, we need a culture of public leadership in the church that doesn't just pop up with a group of leaders and then fade away. We, it needs to be, we need to be telling our young people, you are the head and not the tail. You are the head and not the tail. You are a leader. We need to pray for our kids. Lay your hands on them. Pray leadership into them for God. Okay. The landscape we're in. I needed a good photograph of a landscape and I found this of a crazy golf course. A crazy golf course with a live volcano in the middle. How good is that? I actually think crazy golf should be in the Olympics, but um, it is a good image of a challenging and tricky landscape that we're in. <laughs> I want to talk about some isms. At this moment, I love talking about isms. I love ideology and sort of the ideas that frame and shape the world that we're in. I want to talk about some isms that should be wasms, should be gone, but they're not, uh, accompanied by some paradoxes. Now, you're all familiar with what a paradox is. A 
paradox is something that is, but shouldn't really be because it looks a contradiction, but it is. Think of carrot cake. <laughs> Ca carrot cake's a paradox. Who thought of making a cake with carrots? I mean, oh, I'll make a cake with carrots. Garlic bread, garlic bread. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a paradox. Our entire situation as Christians in the UK, even as non-Christians, is paradoxical. The church is growing in the UK. We've got, we've got a strange problem at the EA of church growth. We don't really know what to do with it, you know, after many years. The church is growing. Nominal Christianity is fading fast. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. But the church, the Bible-believing church is growing. And it's right across the church. the charismatic, Pentecostal, Reformed, Conservative. And it's something to do with churches that are holding firm to the Word of God despite the pressures of our society. God is blessing this. God is blessing this. So we've got this paradoxical situation and paradoxical society with challenges and opportunities in it. Let me start with some of the challenges in it. Well, the first challenge is pretty obvious. It's secularism. That is the idea that religion should have no role in public life and that it should be sort of purged from society uh, or at least confined to a private pursuit amongst uh, miserable people who meet at weekends in gothic refrigerators. That would be enough for the seculators. Average age deceased. Uh, yeah. So, secularists are happy with that kind of Christianity. The paradox of secularism is this. It's never been so powerful, so ascendant, so influential in our society, and never been so exposed and vulnerable and uh, demonstrably unworkable. It's impractical. It doesn't actually work and deliver in people's lives. And we see this all around us. And you see this across the world as well. There was this idea of the secularization thesis by the sociologist Peter Berger, who wrote it in the 70s, the idea that the world will become less and less religious and more and more atheistic. That's obvious, isn't it? Well, he rewrote that in the 1980s and called it the desecularization thesis and acknowledged that he got it completely wrong. It was actually going in the other direction. The church, especially the Pentecostal church, is growing at such a rate around the world that we can't actually track the numbers. We have on our little boilerplate in the Evangelical Alliance that we're part of the World Evangelical Alliance that represents 500 million evangelicals across, across the world. That was written post-Lausanne. It was probably knocked together about 15, 20 years ago. We think in that time it's over-doubled just think about this for a minute. Doubled in 20 years. What is that? We, we need to do some research because we need new numbers on this. Secularism is sustained in our culture by a myth. Well, some, one of the key myths is the myth of secular neutrality, the idea that you can have this secular space, this bubble in the middle of society, uh, and somehow secularism is morally neutral, uh, not biased, and that religious people, they bring all their biases and opinions to public life, so they should be kept out. The only problem with this is it's rubbish. It's, it's impossible. Everybody, every view favors some other views and disfavors other views. There's no such thing as a neutral public space or even a neutral idea. So we need to challenge that at every role. And for Christian public leaders, secularism in the, 
in this conditionality, and it means that we need to be like Daniel. We need to understand the language and literature of the, the Babylonians, and we need to take opportunities to contextualize constantly. Say, ah, secularism. You're referring to the last century, the experiment of the last century. Are you referring to what's now being exposed and diminishing around the world? It doesn't work. And it's getting ever more authoritarian as well. The secular mind sees a legal solution to every problem. It can't deal with the sort of fuzziness and the taboos of society. It has to legal, legislate for everything. And uh, that's causing tremendous problems in public policy. I'll come to a little bit more of that in a minute. The second feature of our landscape, I would say, is this. Sexualism, which is intimately linked, derived from, and in, some, in many ways completely synthesized with secularism. Sexualism is the idea that sexual identity and gratification are the paramount thing. They're, and they shouldn't be restricted or challenged in any way. And it is very closely linked to secularism. And it's, it's linked to another myth, the myth of progress. The idea that human nature is actually essentially good and we can be trusted with each other in, in every way. And that today is better than yesterday just because it's today and that we're inexorably, inevitably moving onwards and upwards towards a city on a hill. Again, the only problem with this is it's rubbish. It's a copy of what's called the teleology of the kingdom of God. Jesus puts a full stop on history because history is his story. Okay? And the world can't live without the meaning and purpose that that gives, so it apes it. It copies it, and it's given us progressivism, progress, an idea that I think has killed and immiserated more people than any other idea in human history. And for Christian public leaders, it means, alongside developing a really good critique of progress, we need to develop a solidly biblical worldview of marriage, sexual ethics, and family life. And we need to overcome our fears about talking about these things much more. A friend of mine at Theos recently said that it, it's funny the way uh, the, the media focuses on Christians and their views on sex. He said, it's not, he said, I know many Christians, they're not obsessed about sex, he says, but the, the media and the world are obsessed about our views about sex. And just, you know, we, we, get, we get media calls all the time to talk about this stuff. And I'd rather talk about employment issues. But the point is, if we don't talk about it well and solidly and confidently from a biblical perspective, someone else will set the agenda. And as a public leader, we can't let that happen. In public life, you know, we have an ideology that's just working away at us and it will not stop. Think about what happened to Tim Farron recently. You know, uh, Tim's resignation speech was absolutely fantastic. Um, if you haven't had a chance to look at it, I think you should. Tim wasn't harassed and chased by what he voted or what he said. He was chased and harassed because of what he thinks and believes. That's very dangerous. And listen to this quote from David Gushy. David Gushy is an evangelical theologian who changed his position to support same-sex marriage in the US. And he was astonished by the degree of animosity on the side that he'd moved to towards Christians and another view and the, the idea that there might be a reasonable other view out there. And he said this, he said, it turns out that you are either for, 
that you are either for full and unequivocal social and legal equality for LGBT people or you're against it and your answer will at some point be revealed. This is true both for individuals and for institutions. Neutrality is not an option. Neither is polite half acceptance, nor is avoiding the subject. Hide as you might, the issue will come and find you. It's sobering, isn't it? And what it means is we need to think about the issue. We need to think about what God thinks about the issue. And then we need to speak about the issue on that basis. And there's no ducking this issue. Another thing to say about secularism and sexualism, it's fascistic. It, it does not, indeed cannot, um, suffer challenges and alternatives to it. You've got to take this stuff on. And you've got to take it head on. It can't be ignored. It can't be negotiated with it. This is a worldview that not only wants to change our laws, it wants to change what's normal, our values. But that's not enough. It also wants to educate our children, and that's not enough. It also wants to redact our sacred text and what our sacred text might say about certain issues. And you'd think that was enough, but it's not enough either, because it also wants to rewrite the role of Christianity in history. And this is happening constantly a deconstruction of history. We're being airbrushed conveniently out because we're a bit of a problem to these ideologies. So if you want to lead in public life, you've got to think about these issues. If you want to try and negotiate and dialogue with them ideologies, knock yourself out. Because my view is they can't be negotiated and dialogued with. We can deal with people, we can love people, we can build relationships, but these are ideologies we're talking about behind which are spirits, spirits of the age. Is this okay? Okay. So public leaders, we need to get good at talking about these issues of sex and truth in public life. And I'm so glad Glenn Harrison's been on the program at this conference. Glenn is doing the thinking around changing the narrative in our culture and giving a more positive narrative and talking about these things in the right way. Okay, next one, landscape, the state, or statism. Once marriage was redefined, or more accurately, privatized, the state, our authorities, assumed a new norm, a new orthodoxy. And the opposite of orthodoxy is heresy. I talked to a set of Catholic cardinals in Strasbourg a few years ago, and I said, isn't it wonderful? Now we're all heretics together, you know? <laughs> They liked it, they got the joke. <laughs> a bit dodgy, but there we go. But the state is now legally, ob it's obliged to enforce this new orthodoxy legally through the laws and uh, coercively through the media in terms of what is good and bad, right and wrong. Um, and it's important that we understand it. And as, and as secularism has made the state more authoritarian, it, it's also affected the law. It's affected the, the way the state sees the law in terms of scale and form. Scale, because the secular mind sees a legal solution to every problem, so, which is, which is ironic, really, because the more freedoms require, if you never notice this, the more freedoms we uh, desire, the more laws we require. Isn't that funny? The more freedoms we desire, the more laws we require, and we don't know how to stop making laws. Apparently, we've got over nine million laws in this country, and we've, we have what we now call in our public policy team the imperial regulatory state, the imperial regulatory state. 
a state machinery that just can't stop moving into parts of life that were hitherto off limits and that it can't really legislate into. The second is the laws change in terms of form, the law itself. And I work with a lot of lawyers at the moment. We partnered with the Lawyers Christian Fellowship to produce this uh, Speak Up resource. There's a few copies outside. Do grab them. It's about your gospel freedoms today. It's a great resource. The laws change in the sense that the law used to be, philosophically, it existed on the basis that uh, of consent to protect people against injustice, okay? To protect people against injustice. That's a biblical view of the law. It's moved now to be more along the logic or along the lines of what is not legal is forbidden. Just have a think about that. What is not legal is forbidden. It's a switch in the philosophical understanding of the law. If you want to know where that leads, just think North Korea. It's totalitarian. What is not legal is forbidden. Everything needs to be defined. And this means that although the authorities like what we do, here's a paradox, food banks, street pastors, schools, healthcare, housing, and Christians are doing so much today around the UK. They really like what we do, but the authorities really don't like what we believe and why we do it. And this is a paradox that we've got to deal with as leaders in public life. So we can expect to be increasingly valued and increasingly vilified, probably by the same authorities on the same day. We've got to accept this paradox. It's not going to be one or the other. We've got to build good relationships and serve our communities. The Lord calls us to do this. But we've got to understand that this paradox is real. It's real. We've got to deal with it, with our statutory agencies and authorities. And it's very much connected to secularism and sexualism. And there's a clear agenda now that we see in our public policy work. Let's just talk about this a minute around the, the concept of harm. Has anyone come across this idea of harm in public life? There are some people who would like to characterize Christian views and opinions and beliefs as harmful to children, to society in general. Um, and this is, this is a, an expansive term across society. We saw it in the way the counter-extremism bill was renamed at the last minute, the counter-extremism and safeguarding bill and in which it, it sought to develop a category of non-violent extremism. Think about that. Non-violent extremism. You know, like Jesus. You could even say Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King. There are many people who are non-violent extremists. I thought that was democracy. Non-violent extremism. And they also sought to to register and regulate what we call out-of-school settings. That's all settings that young people receive teaching for six hours aggregated or disaggregated over a week everywhere. Not just churches, but churches would have been severely hit by this. It would have been the regulation of theology in the UK by Ofsted, who we can all trust, can't we? Yeah. This is seriously happening and it's also why we had the named person legislation in Scotland I don't know how many people have heard of this this was the idea the plan to provide every child with a state appointed alternative parent in the whole of Scotland and our chairman Mao would love to have uh, done this um, and thankfully this was shot down by the Supreme Court in Scotland who when they gave their judgment they said this listen to this 
The Supreme Court statement said this, the first thing that a totalitarian regime tries to do is to get to the children, to distance them from the subversive varied influences of their families and indoctrinate them in their ruler's view of the world. Within limits, families must be left to bring up their children in their own way. Thank God for that state, thank God for that ruling. But this is happening in the UK today. This is not some far off authoritarian regime. This is what we're dealing with through policy today. And thankfully these, these policies I've mentioned have been halted, but we do need to monitor them because they've not been halted altogether and we, we need to continue to um, speak into them. We also have most recently this idea of spiritual abuse being promoted by some safeguard, some parts of the safeguarding industry. Um, please read our report on this terminology. It is freighted with all sorts of problems for the UK church and is a way for secularism and sexualism to weaponize the term against the church. So please do uh, have a look at that. For Christian leaders, what does this mean? Well, it means we need to accept the paradox. It is what it is. And we need to find ways to navigate all of this. We need to navigate it by being more attentive to the details of the law. We need to understand our freedoms, but without becoming just another self-designated victim group. There's enough of them around in society, and the Church of Jesus should never be victims. We're victorious. We should approach rights in a different way in a different way, with a different tone, body language. So that's really important, and please do uh, engage with the Speak Up resource. We need to be more relational in our public engagement. We need to get out of our churches and meet our local politicians. We need to encourage our people to mix in their communities and build relationships of trust. This is really, really important. And we need to develop ways to work with others of other faiths. This is really important as well. At a public policy level, it's very powerful when people of different faith streams and faith groups come together and speak with a united voice. And we often can around a range of issues, and we should when we can. And we need to refine our language and our communication, taking care with our words, being as shrewd as serpents and as gentle as doves. This is very, very important. And it's critical that we're able to articulate also the value of the Christian faith to freedom, to democracy, to what it means to live in a liberal society. People today have forgotten that the roots, the source of all their freedoms, their human rights, their civil liberties, is a book called the Bible. These liberties have been hard won over many, many years by great sacrifices and we can lose them very, very quickly. We need to be reminding our society about the roots of the fruits that they enjoy. That all the good stuff is actually God's stuff. And if you take God out, the good stuff won't be the same. It will change, democracy will change, social relations will change, family life will change, civil society will change. Take God out, it's gonna be different. And as long as people understand that, if they wanna do it, it's up to them. So we've got challenges, but we've also got great opportunities in our society. How am I doing for time? 10 minutes, oh yeah, okay. Uh, identity, very quickly, we have a crisis of identity in the UK. People don't know who they are, so they don't know where they're going. And this, you see this in, in politics, we have a Conservative Party that's not Conservative, a Labour Party that doesn't support working people, and a Liberal Party that is quite illiberal. Um, 
it's a microcosm of what's happening in broad society. People don't know who they are anymore. We need to know who we are in Christ, who Christ is in us, and be confident about that in public life. This is why we have a, what we call the British values debate. You've probably come across this in the news. People don't know who they are anymore. They don't understand the value of our institutions. Everything's about the me and the now. And people don't want to invest in things that are related to what Edmund Burke called the dead, the living, and the unborn. That's where we live. We, we live on what the dead have done for us. We live with the living now and their needs. And we have an obligation to the unborn people coming ahead of us. This is a biblical, Abrahamic view of, of life in this world. Leaders need that. Today, the, the Alliance is dealing with the government's integration strategy, which is essentially about two contradictory things. It's about how can we live together with our deepest differences, and how can we be secularistic? We can't do those two things. Secularism doesn't support a diverse society with diverse views and identities. So in the absence of God, we've got to ask the question to our government. When you talk about an integration strategy, integration into what? What are you talking about integration into? I love looking at this church and seeing the, di the ethnic diversity across this church, the class diversity across this church, the gender diversity, the age diversity. You're a really diverse lot. You really are. This is a model to the world that cannot live together with its deepest differences. The church has got the juice. We've got to show this to the world more. At the Alliance, we're obsessed about the prayer of Jesus in John 17, that we might be one so that the world might see God and believe our unity, as Chris was talking about last night, is our witness. It's very, very powerful. But we're in a, a time of relativism where people aren't joined together. The poet John Dominic Crossens puts it like this. He says, today, there is no lighthouse keeper. There is no lighthouse. There is no dry land. There are only people living on rafts made from their own imaginations. And there's the sea. That is the landscape, in, or the seascape, in which we uh, live today. For Christians, this means that we need to focus on rebuilding institutions, things that last beyond our own lifetime. Whatever we're investing in, we've got to think of the next generation. People don't do, this is countercultural leadership today. We've got to have a strong and con consistent critique of secularism. We're now a minority at the margins. We're not at the center of our society. We don't need to defend the establishment. We're not it. Okay? We don't need, this is a real liberty. This is where the church is most powerful historically. We're effective here. We also need to model this unity. And we need to also talk about truth a lot more in public life. Truth is really, really important. We can't, we can't have a vibrant public square without truth because the chief rabbi said this, Jonathan Sachs, uh, a while ago. He said, without truth, there can be no honesty. Without honesty, there can be no trust. Without trust, there can be no communication. And without that, we don't have a society. Truth is real. Vision. Vision. Well, the Bible says, for, the, for a lack of vision, for a lack of prophetic revelation, the people perish. We 
have a crisis of identity, a crisis of leadership, and it's begging for vision. Let's bring some vision to our society today. We produced this little resource, and there's hundreds of them upstairs. Please take as many as you can grab and take them home with you. It's just a little booklet about what, what kind of society to help Christians to start a conversation in this post-Brexit sort of conversation about who are we and where are we going around these themes of love, freedom, justice, and truth. What would it be like to have a more loving society, a freer society, a more truthful society, a more just society? Very simple. We need to be the people starting and running these conversations and setting this agenda. We need to be the people shaping the British values debate. Vision is vital for public leadership. It gives direction, it brings purpose, it finds solutions, it gives inspiration, it stirs imagination, it provokes action, it gets things done, gets things moving. And vision checks itself, it thinks of others, it thinks of the future, it moves away from the self. It unifies and crucially it brings hope. And hope, hope is our X factor. The world feigns hope. It has false hope in false things, in idols. But we have a hope that's real, that's sure, that's eternal, that we can rely on. It's tangible, it's concrete, and it's proven. We have a proven hope. Hope is our X factor. And being hopeful today, it's revolutionary. It's, it's even subversive, I think. So. Just quickly, with these challenges and opportunities, how do we react or respond? There are a few options here, and in time-honored fashion, they all begin with F, as you know, a good evangelical sermon. The first one is we could fight, and some Christians fall into this um, mode of just raging against the machine and trying to sort of claim a Christendom uh, that, that probably never was, a Christian nation and things like that. Now, this is, this is natural on, in terms of a reaction, but often it's not helpful. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. And when we fight, we fight with different weapons in a different way. We've got to be distinctive. Here we go, Ephesians. We could flee. We could all just pack up and go and live in caravans on a hill in Wales and disappear. And, uh, and this is a big issue. In the, in the US, there's a book called The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher. And he's saying basically Western, his shorthand is Western civilization's gone. It's not redeemable. We should do what the Benedictine monastery's done, circle the wagons with our communities and just batten down the hatches for a couple of centuries, ride it out and see where we go after that. Because Christianity's done this before. We've done it before. The, you know, his, his statement is, there are three kinds of people who run towards disaster, not away, cops, firemen, and reporters. <laughs> That's the logic of his thinking here. The problem we have now, though, is whereas in the past you might have been, been able to do that, now the state can follow you, and it can legislate for the education of your children. There's not many places you can actually flee to, if that makes sense. So I don't think that's an option. The next option, we can fall silent. This is the ostrich in the sand option uh, to preserve our comfort and status. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, 
wasn't silent. And he said this, he said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself, goodwill. Uh, God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. Our silence, when does silence become denial? How will we be interpreted if we fall silent at this time? Opting out is not an option. We could fold. We could just go with the flow of the world and not worry about it. And we're going to see increasing Christian leaders, church denominations, institutions and organizations doing this very thing in the years ahead. You will see it in your lifetime on a scale that will shock you because of the pressures to acquiesce to the dominant culture. Problem here is, as Martin Luther King said, the way of acquiescence leads to moral and spiritual suicide. The way of acquiescence leads to moral and spiritual suicide. There's no future in this. It will give you temporary comfort, but there's no future. We could fear not. This is the final F. I was trying to think of an F, and my wife came up with this one, so I can't claim it. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. We could understand our context, understand the landscape, and decide to intentionally lead change within it on the basis that leading things changes stuff. This is a great quote by Dave Landrum Jr. Yeah, my dad's name's Dave Landrum as well. It's bizarre. And my son. Um, leading things changes stuff. I come up with this slogan, our marketing people at the Alliance hate it, but I think it's brilliant, right? I can see the t-shirt, the baseball cap, but it really does sum up the essence of what public leadership is about. Leading, if you take anything away from this talk today, take this away. Leading things changes stuff, all sorts of stuff. So we need to foster a culture of public leadership in the UK church. Have I got a minute left? I could go through the theology of all of this, the fact that we need to lead like Christ. We're made in the image of the Father who leads, so we've got to lead. We've got to be under authority, because if you're not under authority, you're not in authority. We've got to demonstrate the coming kingdom like a trailer to a film. We've got to look at Jesus as our model for leading. Of a sacrificial, there are two Jesuses in the Bible. There's a heretical statement. There's the sacrificial servant, and there's the warrior king. There's the one who lays down his life for everyone, and there's this image we have of a warrior king covered in blood with a sword coming out of his mouth at the head of an army. When Jesus comes back next time, he's not going to be a, a sacrificial lamb. And when we combine these two aspects of Jesus' life into servant leadership, it's very, very powerful. We serve out of love, but we take things on because truth is important and future generations need it. We need to combine the lion and the lamb. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this as well. And we need to speak truth to power. We need to have tact and wisdom. And we need to be distinctive. Let me just leave, leave it with this. You know, there are all sorts of um, scriptures that point to people that God has taken and raised up as leaders in public life. But this one really does say it all. 1 Corinthians 1.26, brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God, but God 
took the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the things that are not to confound the things that are, and to nullify things. This is in the New Testament, early doors, and we skip over this scripture as if it's just not there. This is part of the, the God package, the salvation package. God was saving people in the early church and raising them up as voices of influence in their society. Think of people like Erastus, the head of public works, etc. He's doing it today. And when we're intentional about it, boy, is it powerful. When we think about it and we plan about it and we get moving on it, it's fantastic. So, just quickly, leading things changes stuff. Most people are thermostats that record or register the temperature of majority opinion. Uh, not Sorry, not thermostats that transform and regulate the temperature of society. We need to be change, temperature changes in our society. There's a whole range of resources that the Evangelical Alliance has produced, a small group course called Change the World, that just as an introduction to this stuff, we're developing a four-month course to develop people as leaders. We've got a 10-month course for high-level leaders that we're running in Scotland, England, Northern Ireland, young people. It makes me want to be young again. It's amazing. Um, so please do avail yourself. There's a load of stuff on a table outside the doors here. Grab everything, take it home with you, get in contact with us, register to be involved and engage with the public leadership material events. Uh, we have an event coming up soon at City Church in St. Albans on the 15th of June, which is an Elam training event. Um, if you're interested in that for church leaders with regards to public leadership, please do register for that. Uh, and please do register to be involved in this public leadership stuff. It's not a silver bullet. It's just two words that we put together to describe something that God is doing, has always done, and will do in greater um, measure and effect in the future going forward.